turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. So I want to start off by asking you a question. Do you ever find yourself regretting something in your past? Are there some things that you've regretted that you've done in your past? I think every single one of us would probably have a resounding yes. There are a few that are self-deceived, that say they don't regret anything. I wouldn't change anything. Everything's perfectly fine. Um, and I think we're living obliviously, if you will, uh, if we think that there's nothing in our past that we regret. But I want to encourage you this morning that though we have past regrets, I want you to think of regret that may actually be something in your future. There may be things right now that you're going through and doing that are going to be a regret in your future. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You see, you and I, we can't change the past. There's nothing we can do about yesterday. It's gone. We can't do anything about last year. It's gone. We can't do anything about 10 years ago. It's over. What we can do something about is today. And moving forward, we have decisions that we make that will make an impact for eternity. There are decisions that you've made in the past that have made an impact for eternity. And I promise you that if we only think of our past regret, if we don't move ahead and think of possible future regret, we're going to have a harder time when we get to the end of our lives. See, one of the things that all of us need to constantly be aware of is that we have a termination point here on this earth. Every single one of us has a day that has been appointed for us to pass from this life into eternity. And just as the nation of Israel has a plan that God has purposed for them, God has purposed a plan for us. And Ephesians clearly tells us that God is, we are His workmanship creating Christ Jesus unto good works that God has ordained before that we should walk in them. You see, God wants you and me to live a consistent life as a believer. And many times we are furthest from consistency, right? We have the ups, we have the downs. Sadly, for some of us, the downs are more frequent than the ups. And I hope this morning, as we take a look at this text in Isaiah 44, that we would be encouraged and take action, starting today if we haven't already, in making sure that we don't have that deadly swap that the nation of Israel did, in swapping God for other things. Because every single one of us has that temptation each and every day to swap the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, for everything else. And as we open this morning, I want you to turn, in, in, and we're going to start in verse number 6. We're going to look at three things here. We're going to look at the fact that God is exclusive in verses 6 through 8. Idolatry is deceptive, verses 9 through 20. And redemption is available, verses 21 through 23. The title of the book of the, this book is authored by the very author, Isaiah himself, who's a prophet. In fact, this is a book that's quoted more than any other book in the Old Testament with the exception of Psalms in the New Testament. The only Old Testament book referred to more frequently is, like I said, the book of Psalms. And as Dr. Constable points out, here are some differences, I don't know if you knew this, between priests and prophets in the Old Testament. In, in, when it comes to the priests, there is a threefold task. Offer sacrifices for the people, teach God's word to the people, and lead the people in cultic, if you will, worship, or organized worship, if you will. The prophets, on the other hand, their threefold task was this, to receive a message from God, to deliver, deliver messages to the people, 
and to lead them in heartfelt worship. The priests were teachers of the people. They appealed to the mind. Their goal was understanding by the people. The prophets were preachers to the people. They appealed to the emotions and the will, and the goal that God set for them was obedience by the people. The priest inherited their ministry. The prophets were called by God to their ministry. Priests didn't foretell the future. Prophets foretold the, the, the future occasionally. The priest lived in assigned towns, ideally. Prophets came from and located anywhere. Priests were very numerous. Prophets were very infrequent. Priests came from one tribe and family, and the prophets came from any tribe or family that God would call. Jewish tradition held that Isaiah suffered, the author of this book, under the martyrdom of King Manasseh because of his prophesying. In fact, the early church father, Justin Martin, makes a statement that the Jews sawed him to death with a wooden saw. So as you read these words this morning, understand the background and the context of this prophet who would one day suffer for the truth that he proclaimed to the nation of Israel. Isaiah lived through the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And one of the key takeaways of this book is the sovereignty of God over all nations and all people. And that God is sovereign even when it looks like the nation that he has chosen is in despair. God will always keep his promises. The northern kingdom had already given into wickedness at this time, and Judah was still given a chance to repent before being sent off into Babylonian captivity. So here's the question, some of the questions that are asked in this book. Would God still be God if Israel was brought into captivity? Does it prove that other gods are stronger if the nation of Israel is brought into captivity in other nations? Well, we're going to start off with the first point here and take a look here. It says in here, God is exclusive, verses 6 through 8. God is exclusive. Read with me. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock I know, not one. The exclusivity of God here is important, and it's an important statement that is not to be trifled with. As we look at the very different, many different variations that we see even in our, our, our current world affairs, we see that different religious systems have an exclusivity to their God, if you will. For example, in Islam, there's strictly one God, Allah, who is all-powerful. He's the creator, director, and judge of all creation, and individuals gain paradise through faithful submission to Allah and obedience to His laws. In Buddhism, there's no personal God at all. All that exists is the product of an eternal chain of cause and effect, and what we perceive as reality is illusion and temporary. There's no permanent identity for persons, and followers achieve nirvana, an existence marked by peace and cessation of desire and suffering. Nirvana ends the cycle of birth and death, and this achievement is through the self-disciplines of meditation and right living. Hinduism states that there's no personal God. Brahman is the absolute reality that encompasses and unifies all that exists. 
Hindu deities are expressions of this one reality. Adherents achieve moksha, or liberation, from the cycle of birth, life, and death through right action, knowledge, and devotion. In Judaism, there is one God, Yahweh, an all-powerful, all-knowing, and eternal creator. He is the holy lawgiver and judge. In fact, conservative Jews achieve heaven through obedience to the law. Reformed Jews attain heaven through betterment of self and society. Now, Christianity. In Christianity, God is personal. He thinks, acts, knows, and interacts with His creation. There's only one God who exists as a triunity of three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Human beings are sinful and can only be saved by the free gift of God's grace received through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that salvation apart from Jesus Christ cannot and will not be attained by man. That's exclusive. There's also proof, by the way, and I'm going to ask you to turn to the last book of the Bible, that Jesus is God based on what we see here in verse 6. In fact, go to the book of Revelation. And I'm trying to find the chapter. I think I missed the actual chapter, but I think it's chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. That's right. I want to start at verse number 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn among, from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Listen to this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, in case you're saying, well, it's close, but not exactly the same as this statement here in Isaiah, turn to Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. Right towards the end of the Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 13 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And what does the last phrase say? The first and the last. Jesus is God. Now turn back to Isaiah chapter 44. When God, the God of Israel proclaims there is none besides me, there is no other God to be worshipped. The worship to Him is exclusive. God exists in three persons, one in essence and being. If you want to understand more clearly the Trinity, I would really strongly recommend that you read our doctrinal statement online. 
You won't find anything more precise in understanding the Trinity than what we have on our website. God here tells Israel, I can tell you the future because I've been right in the past. Whatever I've declared has always come to fruition. I've already shown you in the past that what I say is always true and that you can trust what I've said. If someone is greater, then have him prove it. That's what God is telling the nation of Israel here. God not only tells us that he's exclusive, he then proceeds to tell us that idolatry is deceptive. Look at verses 9 through 20. Verses 9 through 20. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with the hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out one with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself, and he cuts down, takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, that he shall take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half, half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You see, idolatry itself is very deceptive. It's very deceptive. And the reason it's so deceptive is that most people don't even understand what they're doing when they worship an idol instead of God. One of the problems here that God specifically lays out is because he's exclusive, there's nothing else that can take his place. We think that God plus something is totally fine, and God is saying, there's only me to worship exclusively, nothing else. You see, most, most faithful followers of Christ will readily admit that they are not consistent in their walk with God. They will readily admit that there are a lot of things that come between their fellowship with God. And one of the things that God specifically tells Israel here when it comes to the application of idols is number one, in verses 9 through 11, that they're vain, they're useless. Idols are useless. They're useless. They can't provide you what God can. Number two, 
They are made in our image. Most of us, when we worship idols apart from God, we'll get into some of these details in a moment, we find something that suits us. Most of us have preferences. In fact, if you're married to a spouse, you and I know that if you've been married for any amount of time, you have different preferences. If you align on everything, that's going to be rough. It's going to be rough because I don't think one of you is being honest. We all know that we have different preferences, even here in this church. We have different preferences, but what's, what's, what's stunning is most people don't realize that they even have a preference in the idol that they worship instead of God. There's also another point that's made here is that these, these idols are only for a temporary comfort. Both you and I know if we've looked at other things as our comfort and our security, if you will, we know that it's temporary. Why? Because we fall into deep bouts of depression sometimes after we've trusted something to give us that joy that we want from God himself. And the last part that he makes here in verses 18 through 20 is that they're deceptive. Idols are very deceptive. You and I don't even realize we're worshiping idols many times. In fact, if you were to survey most people, yes, I worship God. He's, he's all I'm living for, right? We sing songs like that. But is that true? Or are we lying just like Israel is lying to itself? Idea in the, the idea here in this context is the idol is actually like a block of wood used for heat, baking, and also carved out for worship, making the person absolutely delusional and thinking that they're, they're actually worshiping a God that can save them. Now, lest you and I think Israel is filled with just foolish people and we're better than that, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about some of the reasons why just because Israel, if you will, was one nation under God does not mean that we're not dece deceived in the same way here in America. We worship gods in our culture. And let's see if some of these might be some similarities that you and I may be familiar with. Well, one of the idols that I would bring up, and I think it's a big one in America because it's the American dream, is, is money and possessions, right? I mean, that's, that's a big one in our culture. Whether or not you and I admit it, this is a big idol in our country. And at this time especially, it's becoming more so as the nation becomes more divided. Let's dive into this a little bit. I just want to kind of give you some examples of what I mean by that. We can tell that money or possessions are becoming an idol if, first of all, we're not genuinely happy for other success. Are we seeing any of that going on in our culture today? I think that's something that's plastered on, in media all the time. Class warfare. These people are better off because, fill in the blank. And that may be true. But what's really devastating is that we start believing that everybody else doesn't deserve certain things, I deserve them. There's a selfishness that's involved there. In fact, it's one of the reasons why those that have it better need to give to us. There's a reason why a lot of people, and, and I'm saying this as a blanket statement, so don't quote me directly on everything here. There's a lot of reasons why those that are successful financially have those that are not successful financially constantly look at them in envy. And they're always saying, there's no way they worked that hard and got it. There must have been something that somebody gave them, and that's why they got this. A lot of people work for what they have. And sadly, some of us, we work hard, and we don't get that status that we want. So you know what we end up doing? We look at others to blame. And we look at others in envy. We're not happy that they're successful. 
One of the devastating things also, as a side note, is if God's actually blessed you, you ought to be willing to give. If God blesses you and me, we should be willing to give at any moment when God calls us to do that. And let me tell you practically, you church have been a giving church. I haven't even mentioned tithes and offerings. You've been consistently giving, and I just personally want to thank you for that. It's not just something that I'm saying. I genuinely mean that from the bottom of my heart. Number two, how do we know that money or possessions might be an idol? We see, we see others as a means to get something for ourselves. We see people as a golden ticket. How many of you ever watched Charlie in the Chocolate Factory? I forget the name of the movie exactly, but my kids love it, okay? My, my son, Levi, he could just sit there and watch that movie. Better not mention it. He's probably going to say something right now. But the reality is, is we want that golden ticket, right? And what's, what's sad is when money and possessions becomes the idol in our life, we see others as that golden ticket, if you will. So instead of just seeing people as, as a means to be able to get, you know, more finances, to be able to help our situation at home, or whatever it is, we see people as a means, almost as a golden ticket and a way out. And what ends up happening is without realizing, we sometimes use people to get what we want, especially if it's this is one of those idols in our lives. In fact, some people will run over others in order to get success. Some of us, our idol isn't exactly money and possessions. It might be, but it may be personal comfort, right? Like, how many of us would admit, like, our comfort is definitely not what it should be this year? It just seems completely uncomfortable this whole year, at least probably from February on, right? Like, it's just been a very difficult time. If you're, if you're a person that worships comfort, it's not been comfortable for you lately. It just hasn't. It's been probably the most uncomfortable you've felt your whole life. I, I know for me, planning is just a lot harder now than it used to be. Like usually you kind of talk to other people that have gone through similar things. You're going, how do you work through this? Okay, yeah, I've done this in the past. Here's what's great. When you know John Maxwell doesn't know what to do, you know you're on track to be in the same boat that he's in. All right? When John Maxwell has his own leadership podcast that you're listening to and you realize, man, even this guy hasn't navigated through this mess before, Lord, we need you. <laughs> I need wisdom. I need help. So here's the thing. If you can't live with whatever it is that brings you comfort, then you've denied that God is exclusive to you. Here's another one. Most of us would never admit to this, but there's, there's, a, there's a sense of self-worship that arises in many believers. Every one of us find ourselves to be the center of the universe. Now, we wouldn't say that. We'd say that everybody else is thinking they're the center of the universe. But, but ask yourself, when you have conversations with people, do you not think of me first sometimes? Do you not think of what you would want? You see, one of the things that I think is obvious sometimes for us is when others think of themselves too much. But when was the last time you thought, man, I think of myself too much? Man, I'm full of myself. You have that thought this last week? Or was it always everybody else on Facebook and Instagram and media? Man, they're full of themselves. Look at them. So entitled. You never been that way? You never do those things? Is it everybody else? Or is it possible that we have a, a degree of self-worship in ours? You ever met somebody that was full of themselves? They brag about what they have. 
They brag about how good they are. They brag about how people like them. You're probably thinking, yeah, I know lots of people like that. But let's pause and think for a moment. Could that be you? If, if, you, if people were to be honest, like, could that be you? We're not doing a secret survey, so you don't have to worry about that. Okay? But let's be honest. Could that be us? Could we be giving ourselves a pass that we don't give other people a pass on? When somebody's late, we get upset at them, but when we're late, we have an excuse, right? When somebody else is not faithfully living the family life that God called them to, we point that out, right? My goodness, man, they're not a good couple. They're not a good family. Look at how they're living. They need to do better than that. Well, believer, let me, let me, let me point this right at you. Like, when, when was the last time you guys got together and you were around the, around the Word consistently with your kids? You see, it's, it's a lot easier to find others that worship themselves. It's a lot harder to own it when it's you. And what ends up happening is we tend to go, we, we go this route many times, right? Like, if I give myself a pass here, then, then we're all good. So I can give everybody else a pass and me. Some people go that route. So they won't, they'll do, I don't judge anybody, so that way I don't not judge. So, you know, we're good. We can all be sinners and be okay with what we're doing. We, we don't have to make God a priority. Some people go that route. Others go the legalistic route. They go over the top. They, they blame everybody else for not living righteously, and they themselves have this wonderful halo on that they always wear in front of everybody. I'm the perfect church person. Watch me roar on Facebook. Okay? You can be guilty of self-worship without being external about it too, believer. You see, some people, they think self-worship is always external. It can be internal. It might not be visible to everybody else, but you know, and God knows. Now, some of these also can be a connect, connected in a way where you would be worshiping yourself, which leads you to live in comfort, and because you're not willing to work hard for those things that God's given you, you might be envious of others. So you can actually have a combo of all these things in your life. And, and if you have a combo of all these things in your life, you need to get back to God, and you need to ask Him to help you, Okay? We design idols in our own image. And God stands back watching us fall in deception, waiting for us to see, waiting to see whether or not we will make Him exclusive in our lives. And when we don't make Him exclusive, guess what He sends our way? Trials, struggles, more anxiety. I think one of the best illustrations of how to deal with anxiety is what happened a few months ago. We were talking about the importance of being in the Word, and I had a few people come right up to me right after a service and said, you know what? I didn't even notice this before. I've been reading the Word consistently, and I have, I'm, I'm feeling a lot less anxious. I told them, congratulations, you've understood what it means to be closer to God. And a lot of those things, as, as, the, as that song says, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So, as we're working through this and we realize that idolatry is deception, deceptive, we need to understand that redemption itself is available to us. Look at verses 21 through 23. It says this, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you shall not be forgotten by me. 
I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. God wants Israel to remember that he's redeemed them. He wants you, believer, to remember that he's redeemed you. Israel knew who God was, but they didn't live as if he was priority. I think many of us will say, we know God, but can we say that he's a priority? We live like we know who God is, but he's not our priority. God hasn't forgotten Israel, and he's not forgotten you, believer. In fact, listen to what David says in Psalm 94. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. Listen to what he says. Who will protect me from the wicked? Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had helped me, I would soon have settled in the silence of the grave. I cried out, I am slipping, but your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. Listen to this last verse. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. You need God and His Word more than anything else right now. Turn off the media. Get into the Word. Have God bring the peace that passes all understanding. And I promise you, there's a joy unspeakable that many of us have not tapped into. God is good, and as many things change in our lives, the only thing that's constant is Him. He's the only one that doesn't change. You and I probably changed just this last week. We didn't even notice. But God stays the same. In fact, our body will age. Our loved ones will pass. Our job may be lost. But God, our God, He remains the same. So in conclusion, I just have one question for you this morning. What have you swapped for God? What have you swapped for God? I dare say that that question, if we're being honest with ourselves, is a question that we need to answer constantly. And as Isaiah reminds us, there's only one God to be worshipped. needs to be worshipped exclusively. Let's pray.